Hello everyone and welcome to the last episode of the first series of the I Like Boxing podcast with Joe and Joel. Oh, sad mate. No, it's the last one. I'm Joseph Caulfield, as you all know, joined as always by my less significant other. Can't even remember his name. What's your name again? Joel Ilier. Joel Ilier. (laughs) So Joel, I was actually thinking maybe this week you might be interested to know how I am. I'm good, thanks Joe. Yeah, I'm excited (laughs) to be here as usual. But I sound good, but actually I've, I've been feeling a little bit unsure of myself lately, mate. Right, why is that? Well, you know this volunteering that I do. Oh, yeah, the cat charity. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Right. right, go on. Mate, I'm starting to feel like a bit of an outsider there. That's a bit normal for you, though, isn't it? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, 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 no. Right. It's, the, it's the makeup of this charity. I, I don't think they're used to my kind there. What on earth do you mean by that, Joel? Well, you know, like a alpha male who exudes <laughs> the sort of dominant manly energy that I do. Uh, okay. I'm not sure that's how others well, see. Well, <laughs> it's actually just all women that work there, you see, right. Joe. Okay. So my issue is that I'm finding it quite hard to find common ground with the other staff members. Okay. So I've been doing my best, right? I've been chatting to them a bit about Clarissa Shields and Christy Martin, showing them some old Prince Naz entrances, flying yeah. carpet and all that. Okay. But they just won't let me into their little group. It's a little bit disheartening. And I, yeah. I think it might stop me progressing there to a paid job. I'm sorry, mate, but I have to tell you, you need to give it a bit of time, relax. All right. Show them the real you. Okay. But don't force it. And stop trying to impress them with your tailored pieces of boxing knowledge, for God's sake. Just stop it, Joel. All right, all Why right. don't you ask them what their interests are? That might work. Well, uh, anyway, I was in bed last <laughs> night, lying away, and I was thinking about all of this. I'm, I'm not sure what time it was. Was it 3am by any chance? Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I got to thinking. Right. Mate, it's them. It's not me. They're just not used to my kind in their industry. Right. And I realised I'm like a pioneer in the Cat Charity volunteer driver scene, mate. <laughs> right. Just like like the boxing pioneer Jane Couch. So I guess we have our title for this week's episode where we discuss Jane Couch, a trailblazer, an icon and someone who we credit massively for ensuring women's boxing in this country has developed the way it has. Without Jane and her stoic, brave legal victory over the British Boxing Board of Control, we wouldn't have the likes of, to name just a few, Savannah Marshall, Terry Harper and even Ireland's Katie Taylor featuring so prominently today on boxing shows and getting the sort of pay and recognition that talented female fighters so richly deserve. So we want to celebrate the life of someone who truly encapsulates the meaning of the word fighter, whilst also shining a light on the often horrific struggles and discrimination that Jane faced from key figures, both inside and outside of the boxing ring, in her quest simply to be allowed to do the job that she loved. So without further ado, let's get going. Okay, so I want to start off the pod by saying just how enamoured I was with Jane's story. Because for me, it's thrilling, moving and tragic in equal parts. So to give a bit of context, we've taken the bulk of our research from Jane's autobiography titled The Final Round, published in 2019. Where, can, where is this book available, Joel? In all good bookshops. I can't, I'm so pleased I got that one in. Just amazing. <laughs> Um, So we've taken lots of our research from her autobiography and bits and pieces from the internet, YouTube, etc, etc. And as always, the deep recesses of our brains. There is also a book which I have to mention, which is titled Jane Couch, The Fleetwood Assassin, published in 2000, which is allegedly her story as told through Tex Woodward, her longtime trainer. Yeah, this is the one that I concentrated on more. Yes, you read this book first initially. Mm. I read her autobiography and, and then we swapped. Now, the reason I'm bringing up both books is because I say 
allegedly, Jane mentions either in her autobiography or in the podcast that she did, the excellent podcast that she did with Tris Dixon in 2019. Thanks, Tris, by the way, for giving us a retweet recently. You're a man who has good taste. She actually mentioned that she hated the Fleetwood Assassin book because it was essentially written by Tex and it had little oversight from her when it was published and she actually said that she felt she came across quite badly. Yeah, I'll just add to that. Much of that book, I've got to say, did seem quite unbelievable. Absolutely, absolutely. In her autobiography, she comes across as very honest, genuine and, Mm. you know, very open and and honest about her struggles. Quite vulnerable, I guess. Yeah, she really did, yeah. Exactly, Yeah. yeah. In the Fleetwood Assassin book, though, I mean, she comes across as a, just a larger-than-life character, and, and many of the stories are just too good to be true. Almost as if the person who did write it, whoever that was, i.e. text, was simply trying their best to paint, as I said, a, a sort of picture of this larger-than-life character. Yeah, it was, it, and, and you've got to bear in mind as well, that was actually during her fighting career, so they yes. were trying to create a bit she of a She was still persona. active at that point, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that can be, yeah, it can be screwed. They were trying to create something yeah. that maybe wasn't accurate. Yeah. Anyway. So the pod will reference some of the stories in that book too, but we've taken the executive decision, which is essentially my decision. Joel's not really involved in the executive decision. I like to let him make a decision sometimes in a similar way to uh, what Angelo Dundee used to do with Muhammad Ali. Oh, really? Yeah, Yeah. just point him in the right direction and then make him think it's his ideas. Cheers, Joel. Thanks a lot for that. Um, So we are going to place more reliance on the information in Jane's autobiography, but nonetheless, we invite our listeners to read both both books and make their own minds up. Right, let's start with a bit of background information about Jane herself. So she grew up in Fleetwood in the 1970s and 1980s, hence the nickname, the Fleetwood Assassin. I have to say, I'm not a massive fan of this nickname. It makes her sound like a hired gun or something. Whoa, 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 one sec, one sec. No, I've got to refute this, Joe. Okay, go go for it. (laughs) Tommy the Hitman Hearns, yeah? James Bonecrusher Swift, right? Hitman Hearns goes well. This is boxing, mate. You know what I mean? It's it's meant to make you sound like a bit of a killer. I know. Hitman Hearns has the alliteration to it, though. That's why I like that one. I like like Fleetwood Assassin. I think that's like a nice localised boxing moniker. Fair enough. I I respect your opinion, Joel. No. <laughs> that is the biggest lie I've heard from you for a while. <laughs> right, so Fleet, Fleetwood's a fishing town, and Jane says that her upbringing there was relatively poor. Now, because it was a fishing town, Jane also says that most of the men who lived there sort of had no option but to work on the boats. That was essentially the, the sole source of work available. Mm. They would be away for weeks on end, um, but then when they came back with their wages in cash, they would go out on the town, give their wives and girlfriends money for the bills, etc., food. And they would obviously retain a healthy amount for themselves, which I think was probably just drinking money because they would only be back in town for like a long weekend before they'd have to go back to sea. Growing up, Jane talks about fighting against bullies at school. And there is a, a re- there's one story in particular where she recalls standing up for a mixed race kid who was being subjected to racist abuse. Jane, incidentally, was... I think expelled from school around the age of 14 and actually a a lot of her early years remind me a bit of Peter Buckley Mm. because he was subject of one of our episodes and you know she had no interest in school she was often in trouble and eventually got caught up in petty crime which was mirrors Peter's upbringing yeah indeed it is and you're right actually there are similarities with Peter Buckley's story early on another point about her childhood that resonated with me is that despite this she says she had an excellent upbringing and was particularly close with her brother tom yeah so tom's story is quite interesting too as he wanted to be in a band as a kid and bravely took a leap of faith as a young adult and moved to the u.s where he 
formed a relatively successful band and followed his dreams. So respect to that man. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, their mom clearly played a big role in their lives because yeah. Jane's portrayal of Fleetwood is that it's one of those small towns where everyone ends up spending most of their lives in, which you referenced before. Yeah, uh, just sort of wasting away. Yeah. Uh, most men become fish- fishermen and most women become wives and mothers but Jane's mum really encouraged her kids to dream big and look beyond Fleetwood absolutely uh, on her relationship with her brother as well I think Jane followed him to London uh, when she was 15 years old and actually lived with him in Clapham on and off for seven years uh, before moving back to Fleetwood so he evidently is close to her and she's close to him and he obviously formed a key part in her formative years yeah so that was a very interesting thing that I got from the from the autobiography Right, let's talk about how Jane got into boxing. So she got into boxing after watching a documentary about Christy Martin. This was around 1994. And for those who don't know, Christy Martin was an American women's boxer who many believe was the first to sort of legitimise women's boxing in the 1990s. There is an excellent documentary on Netflix about her life called Untold, Deal With The Devil, which I highly recommend our listeners watch because it's amazing. Christy Martin's life story is just unbelievable. Yeah, Christy Martin was promoted by Don King and she appeared on lots of those huge undercards that Don used to put on of boxers like Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, Felix Trinidad, stuff like that. And actually, to give a more accurate comparison of her place in boxing at the time, yeah. she was promoted and exploited in a very similar way to Butterbean All right. or for a more recent example, an undercard version of Jake Paul, a yeah. sort of novelty attraction. So I am going to refute that sort of what you said earlier about many people thinking that she sort of really helped legitimise female boxing. That I think this is a bit of a narrative that may be placed on her career, post-career. And post- in this, I, okay, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen enough. this documentary that you yeah. just talked about there, the Netflix one, but I remember her career. I remember how she was promoted. Yeah. And it wasn't as a legitimate boxer, really. To oh, be really? No. Oh, okay. Interesting. No, um, no, no females were at the time. No, I suppose- we're talking 90s. I mean, this wasn't an era where women's boxing was taken seriously. I mean, we'll move on to this later on in the pod. But anything now where we look back and say, oh, in the 90s, they were promoted as this or that, anything other than, oh, it's a, it's a woman fighting. I mean, the, the one person you could say yeah. maybe di- slightly different was Leila Vali. I mean, yeah. I'm talking about the US scene here. You had different stuff in Europe slightly with, um, oh, what's the lady's name? You're going to have to help Lucia me out. Riker. Lucia Riker. Lucia yeah, which yeah. you couldn't watch her fight and think that she's anything but legitimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. no, the others, it was, it was, it was novel attractions, including Christy Martin. Okay, fair enough. I suppose maybe she did help bring, potentially bring women's boxing into more of the mainstream. Definitely. Than it had been given that she was on a lot of these massive undercards. 100%. Okay, cool. So anyway, after Jane watched the Christy Martin documentary, she went to her local Fleetwood gym the next day and asked for a trainer, but was roundly laughed at. Now, when she said that she saw women could box on the television, she was basically told that was in the States. It wasn't in, that's not the case in the UK. And this is where it gets really interesting because coach at that gym by the name of Frank Smallbone, who I think also was a family friend, agreed to train Jane the next day in spite of the fact that she you know, was laughed at for suggesting that she wanted to sort of take boxing up. Yeah, he was very influential in Jane's early career, without question. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the owner of the gym where which Jane went to in Fleetwood, he was opposed to Frank training a woman, and because of that, he didn't want Jane 
to be visible in any way, shape or form. So it was agreed with Frank that Jane would train in the evenings when other boxers had left the gym, the gym had closed. So this was sort of like an early taste of the problems that she would later encounter in her career. I've got a button here, okay, because in defence of the gym owner, I'm not sure this is a clear case of sexism or outdated attitudes, actually. Okay. I think a key reason why he would have been opposed to Frank training Jane was because it was an amateur gym and Jane was not an amateur fighter. Yeah. I might be wrong here, but back then I think there was pretty clear rules in place which prevented amateur coaches from training professional fighters. Yeah. And Jane never had an actual amateur career. Yeah, she went pro straight away. Yeah. So in essence, Jane really shouldn't have been training at that amateur gym. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and the rules are pretty much the same now. Okay. So in the Fleetwood Assassin book, there is a story in which Jane, after watching the Christy Martin documentary, got in touch with the WIBF's UK secretary about potentially having a fight arranged. Okay. The WIBF is the Women's International Boxing Federation. It is not to be confused with the IBF, which is a completely separate organisation. That's okay. one of boxing's four major sanctions bodies. Yeah, indeed, the International Boxing Federation. Yeah. So the WIBF was an upstart organisation founded in the early 90s to promote women's boxing, and this was before the major sanctioning bodies we know today, such as the WBC, WBO, WBA and IBF, had formally recognised and issued titles for women's boxing. Yeah. Anyway, Jane contacted the WIBF and was told that they needed a fighter in five weeks' time, and they asked her height, her weight, all of that sort of business. So According to the Fleetwood Assassin book, Jane had her first professional fight booked before she had even trained properly. So, mate, this is the stuff that Hollywood manuscripts are made of, really. There's a really interesting story actually mentioned in both books where Jane talks about her experiences of working at a gypsy scrapyard around the time she decided she wanted to be a professional fighter. So if there were any disagreements, she basically said that these were settled by bare-knuckle boxing. (laughs) which really helped her practice, and I thought that was quite funny. Um, another story I found interesting is that when any travellers came to the gym, the Fleetwood gym she was training at, and they asked to spar, she would volunteer, and this would be men, by the way, and that allegedly, once they had sparred Jane, whenever they came back, they would always ask to spar her again. A hard woman. Superwoman. On to Jane's professional career as a fighter. So her first fight was against a policewoman called Kalpna Shah on the 30th of October 1994, which took place in Wigan. And Jane won that by a second round stoppage. And she certainly doesn't shy away from the fact that she got to beat up a policewoman in her first <laughs> contest. Fair play yeah. to you, Jane. Why not? Not a bad gig, eh? No. So that fight was also the first time that she met Tex Woodward who, as we've mentioned, went on to become a full-time trainer soon after that, and he was a very influential figure in her career. He was. Tex was a representative of the WIBF at the time. Right. Um, this fight was actually sanctioned by the WIBF, as the, the event was a mixture of boxing and kickboxing, which was quite common, actually, at the time. Right. And this is essentially why it was allowed to take place in the UK. So, so I just want to make clear here for our listeners. Yeah. There's a common misconception that female boxing was banned in Britain at yeah. the time. It was not. Yeah. It was not licensed by the British Boxing Border Control. So there's two 
different things here. Yes. Saying, well if it said. was banned, the government wouldn't have allowed it to happen. Yeah. It was not banned. It was not sanctioned. Right. So anyway, Jane was meant to be paid £150 for her efforts yeah. in this, but wasn't because the promoter had allegedly lost money on the event. Right. So this is a reoccurring theme throughout Jane's career, and it's very sad because yeah. ultimately for this one, the purse was agreed before the fight, yeah. and the fight was actually a sellout, incidentally. Mm. She should have got paid. It's that simple. It's irrelevant if the event makes money or doesn't. Jane should be paid. Yeah, and you're right. It's a recurring theme throughout her career, and we will touch on this again. There's a few more stories about money or lack of it. So Jane had a further three fights in 1995 against nondescript opponents. All of them took place in Fleetwood at unlicensed events, so confirms Joel's point that boxing obviously went banned. It just wasn't sanctioned by the British Boxing Board of Control. Jane then made the decision to move out of Fleetwood and move in with Tex Woodward and his family so she could train at the Spanorium Gym in Bristol. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. I think so, but it's, I've it's never heard it outside name. of this. But I think really you're right. odd yeah. name for a gym. But anyway, so she moved into the Spanorium Gym, which by all accounts had excellent facilities. And if I'm right, I think Lennox Lewis actually had trained there previously. So Jane talks very candidly in her book about sparring men on a daily basis before taking on Sandra Geiger on the 31st of May 1996 for the WIBS super lightweight title. So bear this in mind, listeners, this is the context. In just her fifth fight, Jane was fighting for a world title. Interestingly, in her book, Jane says that Sandra Geiger's record at the time of their fight was 29 fights, 29 wins and 29 knockouts. Somewhat intimidating, but actually, we've looked into this, and strictly speaking, we don't think this is true. Joel, you can help us out here. Yeah, so I don't know where this has come from, this 29 fights and 29 wins, 29 KOs record. If that was her record at the time, I think it must have been a kickboxing record. She was a huge kickboxing star in France. Yeah. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any box rec equivalent for the sport of kickboxing. I, I may be wrong there, but I can't find anything. So again, I can't can't verify this yeah when i checked her record on box rec yeah. at the time of the jane character fight yeah her record was one and oh so furthermore in the fleetwood assassin book sandra's record is said to be 24 and 4 as opposed to the 29 and i quoted in the final rhyme book. exactly yeah. so there's really a lot of contradictory information going on that's the real problem with what we've been doing and checking stuff that should just be fact yes is contradictory in each book yes yeah actually both books are like chalk and cheese really in terms of you know how they're written and some of the information in it that's why i said to earlier we'd invite listeners to read both books because it's just it's just interesting to see yeah yeah so the sandra geiger fight took place in denmark right on it is it is yes it was uh, in copenhagen on the 31st of may 1996 And it was a big deal because the French president at the time, Jacques Chirac, flew over from France to support Sandra Geiger. And it was also televised in the United States. Now, can you believe this? In just a fifth fight, Jane won on points. And and I assume it was, or certainly would have been an upset at the time. And she speaks very candidly in her autobiography about the effect of the fight on her in that she says it was the most brutal fight of her entire career hear this quite a lot don't we that your hardest fight was your biggest win yes and stuff like that it's, I think we've touched on this before in the pod yeah possibly but anyway Jane was almost knocked out in the second round of the fight yeah and this is what she said in the Fleetwood Assassin book right in one of the passages I really do genuinely believe to be true the second round was almost over when she hit me with such a hard right hand to the head that bells started ringing right it didn't matter three more right hands to the head cleared all the noise <laughs> 
when I watch part of the videotape, I can't believe I stayed on my feet. This is such a typical account of being really buzzed in a fight by a boxer. And it's this thing that you hear sometimes that you can get really buzzed and hurt by a punch. And the follow-up punches... Clears your head. <laughs> yeah, or your head hitting the mat, the canvas. Yeah. Afterwards can really clear your head and just wakes you up. It's a real funny one. It's amazing. Yeah. I've got a little list coming up, Joel, because according to Jane... Yeah, lovely. According to Jane, after this fight, she ended up in hospital with the following injuries. Go for it, Joe. Broken ribs, a broken cheekbone, a fractured eye socket, Ouch. a missing tooth, and the broken jaw. Oh, Minor God. injuries, really. Let's, let's be honest. Nothing much to worry God about. <laughs> imagine if she'd lost. God, yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. This was also interesting. The fight was also interesting because the undercard featured a fighter called Mike Hunter known by the name of Mike the Bounty Hunter. He comes across so well in the books. He does, absolutely. In fact, Jane speaks very glowingly She really of likes him. him she really she? likes him, yeah. yeah. Now, during his career, Mike Hunter fought notable opponents such as Oliver McCall. And, Joel, you've got a, an interesting point about Oliver McCall, don't you? Who has the strongest chin in boxing history? Oliver McCall. And right. anyone who would like to discuss or argue this point with me or even debate it, it's very welcome to until you end up agreeing with me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I actually agree with Joel one of the few times on this point. <laughs> um, Mike Hunter had also fought Pinkland Thomas. But at this stage of his, of his career... He was essentially a journeyman fighter. Mm. And what's really interesting is that when Jane spoke to him prior to his fight, uh, Mike Hunter candidly admitted that he was only interested basically in getting paid. He had no desire to win the fight. And Jane couldn't believe this. Jane essentially was sort of showing her naivety, I guess, because she was obviously new to boxing, couldn't get her head around, I guess, the concept of a fighter not being willing to go all guns blazing to win a fight. It is. I mean, we are sort of desensitised by this notion of a journeyman because we're in the sport, we love the sport, exactly. we've been fans of the sport for so long and it seems entirely normal to us. Exactly. That you have this competitive environment and one half of that competitive environment isn't actually trying to be com- competitive in yeah, the fight. It's exactly. a very odd one. Exactly. And so I've had this with people that, you know, aren't big in the sport or anything like that, and maybe casual fans or just sports fans, or, you know, I've just decided to engage them on boxing as a discussion. As you do. As I tend to. On Tinder <laughs> and, and the rest. <laughs> and so, you know, and they find it, what is really common is they just find this idea of a journeyman just to be a mind-blowing concept. Yeah. So I can see where she's coming from. If you're new to the sport, yeah. it is something to get your head Anyway, Jane does, as we've said, speak quite glowingly about Mike Hunter in both the books. She really appreciated that he mentored her on the business and warned her about the pitfalls in boxing. You need a figure like that, don't you? Absolutely. Another interesting thing about the Geiger fight is that as a woman, Jane shared the same dressing room with Mike Hunter. Right. Now, I can't imagine that that would fly these days in any event, let alone a sort of top-level sporting event. Yeah. Apparently, Tex also said that after the fight, he went into Sandra Geiger's dressing room to give his commiserations, which is a nice touch. Yeah. He said that Sandra was all alone, abandoned by her trainers and team, and she was just there, a solitary figure, very upset. It's really brutal. It was such a lonely sport at times, and this is one of those images. I keep having this image of my head as sort of her sitting on the chair on her own you know, devastated at this loss. And abandoned, essentially, and abandoned. by her own team. Yeah, you know, it's not nice, it's absolutely. Yeah. But, yeah. So, on returning to Fleetwood, Jane found that she was now a local star. And so she should be. And it's interesting as well that you mentioned she was a star locally, because in her final round book, she very interestingly says that her achievement, winning the IWIBF, 
title was ignored by the mainstream media at the time and wasn't even mentioned on Boxing News. And she says that she actually contacted Boxing News in a fairly disgruntled manner to query why that was the case. But you've got an interesting take on this, Joel. Well, I do. I mean, I'm just not entirely sure that she was totally ignored by the mainstream press, that's all. I'm not saying that the coverage would have been as she or we would find suitable. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But she had gotten a lot of press prior to the fight and the build-up. She was even on the Frank Skinner show, which also featured in that programme the late, great Marvin Hagler. Yes. So in the 90s, by the way, for our, our listeners, the Frank Skinner show was a hugely popular comedy chat show, which was broadcast at prime time on British terrestrial TVs, BBC One. So this meant that it was available to view in almost every household in the country. And it was a popular show as well. No it was question. well popular. It was one of the most popular shows at the time. Yeah. So millions would have viewed James' appearance. There's a excellent tweet I found on the internet, funnily enough, when I was researching. I was trying to find footage of the the show itself. Um, it's not there, I, It's not it? there, yeah, no. Yeah. But I found a brilliant tweet from Jane in which she responds to a tweet from Steve Bunce. This is in 2018, where he'd be asked the Twitter universe for a favourite Marvin Hagler story or quote. So Jane responded to his tweet and referred to the aforementioned Frank Skinner show. So she said the following, and I quote, I did the Frank Skinner show with him and Brian London years ago. Real legend. It was one of my first live TV appearances. Marvin got me through the nerves, talking to me backstage, right until we went out in front of the live audience. What a gentleman and fighter. Absolutely lovely words. And In the main, I think it might be fair to say that the press Jane received was more about the novelty of being a female fighter who looked like Jane and fought like Jane. Yeah. I don't think they were actually that interested in whether she achieved anything, a note in the sport or anything like that. Yeah. Also, to touch on something now, which we'll discuss later in the episode. Yeah. Look, Joe, the vast majority of the coverage Jane received in the press and on television was actually overtly sexist. I totally agree with you, and we will discuss this in in detail later on in in the pod. Back to the Geiger fight, um, one thing that amazed me about the Geiger fight, and I know you've got something to say about this, but the was essentially the lack of pay uh, or or the pay she got. So according to Jane, she was paid €1,000 for this fight, but after Tex had deducted expenses, uh, cost of flights and hotels, she apparently only earned €200, which, if true, is obviously embarrassing. Jane said that after the Sandra Geiger fight, she contemplated quitting boxing owing to her injuries, but also the mental toll that fight had taken on her. I must point out that I just don't know how much we can rely on specifically the purse aspect to this story, okay? And that is the only part I'm referring to. It's just the purse aspect. Because I don't know how she could have been paid in euros as the euro didn't actually exist for another five years (laughs) after this fight. Right. And the currency in Denmark, where the fight took place, is still the Danish kroner. That's amazing. I didn't realise that. Well researched, So maybe in the book that you're quoting from, they've made a conversion for Riederese. Again, though, converting into euros would be a curious way of simplifying things in a British book aimed at a British audience with the subject being a British woman. Yeah. So for our non-British listeners, Britain, in common with Denmark, does not use the euro. None of what I've just said takes away from the point of James' story here. And the lack of pain. She had a huge fight and was paid a pitiful amount, which in itself was a lot less than the pitiful amount that she'd actually been agreed to take as her purse before the fight. Absolutely. Good so anyway, 
Anyway, James said that after the fight, as you mentioned before, it was the first big crash that she experienced in that she'd had the high of winning the WIBF title and afterwards she had a bit of a calm down, but actually it wasn't just a bit of a calm down. It was a quite dark and depressing place to be in. Yeah. This shocked me because, you know, she'd had the biggest success of her career, which yeah. for anyone is such an achievement doing what she'd done. Yeah. And it was immediately within days followed by possibly the lowest moment of her life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually not that surprised, to be honest. And I'm, I'm looking at it from her perspective in that she's just like, okay, she's just won a world title. Fantastic moment. But she's been paid a pitiful amount of money in whatever currency it was. Yeah. <laughs> but she's, she's had to take an awful lot of punishment in that fight. And of course, in training, I assume the training wasn't easy. Mm. And it appears to be, you've done, made all that sacrifice, it appears to be scant rewards. Yeah, good point. And another thing I guess we've got to consider and factor in here is that Jane took a lot of punishment in that fight. She did, yeah. And as Tris Dixon talks a lot about the effect that concussions can have on the brain and the depressive effect... Jane's first defence of her WIBF world title was against Andrea Deschamps in the US on the 2nd of March 1997 in New Orleans, in fact. And she won that fight by way of 7th round knockout. What is notable about this particular fight is that Angelo Dundee, the legendary trainer, and Matthew Saeed Mohamed, former world light heavyweight champion, were in Jane's corner for that fight. Can you believe that, Joel? Yeah, well, it, it, I can, because they're boxers. it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but apart from... The- Teaching me everything I know about management. Right. Angelo Dundee is also a true legend <laughs> of the sport. Yes. He's very famous for training Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, loads more, including Darren Morris. In yes, fact. Darren Morris. So Angelo Dundee met Jane at the hotel before the fight. Yeah. It was just a chance occurrence, I assume because Angelo had some of his fighters fighting on the card as well. Yeah. So now at the weigh-in, Jane was one pound over the limit for the fight. Yeah. Jane then went to the toilet to relieve herself in an attempt to lose the pound and <laughs> right. Angelo Dundee's wife just happened to be in the same toilet right. she then asked Jane what was wrong and Jane, as Jane was looking a bit upset so Jane told her that she was just over the weight limit for a fight Angelo Dundee's wife told Jane not to worry and said Angelo would fix it Wow! so Angelo's wife talks to him at which point Angelo Dundee turns up at the weigh-in with a two pound tin of peas a two right? pound tin of peas what, how, what's, how's that going <laughs> to Mate, we're, about, we're about to go into our little shenanigans area right, here. Okay. Boxing, oh, yeah. shenanigans Boxing shenanigans are about to occur. <laughs> right? So he proceeds to put the tin on the scales and announces, these scales are one pound out. That tin should be two pounds and it's only one pound. So Jay right. then proceeds to get on the scales again, weighs exactly the same as she did the first time around, minus a little wee. But this time, <laughs> because of the esteem in which Angelo Dundee was held, yeah. the inspector simply said, Angelo's right, you're 140 pound instead of 141 that guy no one said no to Angelo Dundee that's a, an amazing story he basically just took whatever Angelo Dundee said at face value yeah yeah okay yeah. great <laughs> amazing sadly however there was a slightly sad element to this story Jane was due to get paid $5,000 for that fight but she wasn't paid because after the event the promoter yet again said they had no money to pay her having allegedly lost money on the event and as you alluded to earlier Joel it doesn't matter I mean you've agreed a fee you've got to pay the fighter it's disgusting it's absolutely outrageous 
Steve Presnell, who was sort of acting as James' manager at the time, went to collect the purse after the fight from the promoter, Bobby Warjack. Right. Allegedly, none of the fighters got paid. But I'm telling you, if Angelo Dundee was managing fighters on that card, I guarantee you that they would have got paid 100%. If she had someone like Angelo Dundee yeah, exactly. as her actual manager, yeah. as opposed to her, you know, tin mm. of peas person, <laughs> then she probably would have got paid, let's be I honest. So. Also, if she probably mentioned it to Angelo, you'd probably think he's probably not going to I know, bearing in mind what had happened as well, yeah. the fact that he was in her corner, yeah. and perhaps, yeah, who knows? Yeah, who knows, who knows? So Jane's next fight was on the undercard of the Roy Jones Montel Griffin main event, where she fought Leah Millinger on the 7th of August, 1997 and there's yet another horrific story to tell about Jane uh, which again I think reflects probably the lack of respect that female fighters seem to garner at that particular time she turns up for the fight with Tex and two others I'm not sure who they were but I I'm suspect they were part of a training team or from the gym yet only one hotel room was booked for them because of this although I can't quite get my head around why Jane didn't get to sleep in the bed Jane said that she had to sleep on a recliner in the middle of the hotel room which was next to a fruit machine. It's just incredibly bizarre. And that's the evening before her fight, which incidentally, she still won on points. Hmm. Joel, guess what she got paid? Indulge me, mate. 8,000 Swedish kronor. <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately not. Huh. $500 after expenses to gain is a rather pathetic sum. Hmm. And what's also interesting around this time is that because she was picking up more press... Jane was allegedly offered £10,000 to fight at Wembley, which she couldn't accept as the British Boxing Border Control wouldn't grant her a licence, essentially because mm. she was a woman. Right, well, here we go. I mean, that's an early indication of the restriction of trade exactly. stuff that we'll be going into. Yeah. But anyway, so Jane doesn't actually mention this next bit in her autobiography, right? But in the Fleetwood Assassin book, apparently a businessman with property interest by the name of Maurice Rosen became her manager prior to the Leah Millinger fight. Yeah. And he allegedly agreed to a deal with Tex in which he took just himself yeah. a 30% cut of her in and out of ring earnings on a three-year contract. If that's true, I mean, that's astonishing. Mm. Well, this is a contract which was negotiated by Tex, so yeah. I imagine that part of the deal doesn't include whatever he would be entitled to, as in Tex, yeah. as James Trainer, which... I reckon would be, you know, around the 20, 25% mark, considering mm, a few a few things we've read in the book. Okay. So there's another brilliant story in the Fleetwood Assassin book, actually. Is this I, the bank story by any chance? It is, mate. <laughs> I this knew is it was this quality one. one. This right? is brilliant. Right, so <laughs> I hope this is true anyway. Right, so James says that Maurice Rosen tried to get her to open a joint business bank account in the name of Fleetwood Promotions Limited. Right. Right. So to facilitate this, Jane was taken to London to a branch of the NatWest Bank. Right. right? So unfortunately, Jane <laughs> owed a load of money to NatWest at the time. So right. she panicked when she arrived and basically did a runner. All right. So she had to, she had to meet and whatever and then just made her excuses <laughs> and got out of there, started thinking about it. Oh, I need to get out of here. Oh, um, but anyway, crazy. Maurice Rosen also allegedly had links to Panos Eliadis. Who, for those who don't know, is a big figure in boxing in the 90s as the lawyer and promoter of Lennox Lewis. Yes, that's right. Yep. 
Anyway, Maurice Rosen allegedly promised Jane a £500 spend for the Leah Mellinger trip, but never gave her the money. So she was constantly begging for money and to spend on the trip, which she understandably felt quite degraded about. Yeah. And she said she was in a constant bad mood. Another thing that's really interesting about the Mellinger fight is that the original agreement was that Jane would take no purse at all. Oh, yes. Now, I do recall this particular... This is another interesting story, actually. Yeah, so this is... What's the name? Steve, whatever his name's name is this was his negotiating yeah. i imagine for the fight so this is what jane is paying her 25 30 percent for right yeah okay get this audience jane would take no purse at all for the fight right. therefore not get paid and the 10 grand purse that was set aside for the fight to be yeah. split between the two of them would all go to her opponent yeah now we are quick to hammer these sporting commissions when we feel they deserve it so let's give praise here to the Connecticut Commission who were licensing the fight. They stood up for Jane here. They did, yeah. So when Jane's team got to Connecticut and they had to declare the purses, the local commissioner was horrified to discover that Jane was not getting paid and said, no, we refuse to go ahead with this. Yeah. So he suggested a £5,000 purse, yeah. which Jane's manager haggled down to £2,000. And yet, despite this, I think she only received £500 after expenses. And bear in mind as well that she was promised the same sum of money to spend on that trip, yeah. which she didn't get. Yeah, so, so it was all just absolutely outrageous, really. And something I just want to point out as well, that a minute ago we spoke about the percentages that this manager was getting this 25 to 30% yeah. right of her purse. So then we're saying that Tex was getting probably around the same amount. Yeah, yeah. We're saying here that whatever Jane's purses were for these fires at this time in her outring activity, she was probably receiving less than half exactly. of the money that was actually assigned to her. So just to make that really clear. Anyway, on a lighter note, after this fight, Jane apparently went up to Michael Buffer and <laughs> said, Mum, I'm fancies you. <laughs> He's such a smooth operator, isn't he, Michael? Yeah, he really what is. a voice. Yeah. Voice of boxing. Uh, George Foreman, who was ringside for the fight, also told Tex, you've got a good girl there, which is high praise indeed. That's lovely. That's really nice. Mm. So after that, Jane's next fight was on the 24th of October 1997, where she suffered her first loss to Dora Webber in what appears to be a non-title fight. And Joel, being the master of research that you are, the boxing scholar, the man who just knows the sport inside out, you've got another piece of brilliant information for us. So this event was dubbed a female fistic frenzy event. So it was put on in order to bring together the most able group of female boxers that we had seen at any one time. Yeah. Now, I did check out the card, and if I'm honest, I couldn't recognise any of the other names on it. Right. Uh, but Jackie Callan was on board in some capacity for this event with the WIBF. Yes. So Jackie Callan is famous for becoming James Tony's manager in what was probably boxing's first major male-female business relationship. It was a really unique and interesting relationship as well, wasn't it? It really was, because Jackie was this middle-class Jewish woman, and James Tony was this legendary African-American, larger-than-life, brat boxer, who sort of carried off this image of sort of this sort of ghetto image, which actually, if you've read Donald McRae's book, might yes. not be entirely correct, but this was the image carried off at the time. So it was a really unusual but interesting relationship all the same. Yeah. It made waves at the time. This was all over the place. Yeah. In fact, you should read the Donald McRae book that I mentioned there, The Dark Trade, 
which goes into their relationship in depth. It's a fascinating insight into the relationship and the wider game. And where, where's that book available, Joel? At all good bookshops. <laughs> God, this well, joke's going to get old. The ones that are still open anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Donald McRae had a great relationship with James Tony. Yeah. Writes about him extensively in the book. In, interestingly, for the first Dora Weber fight, yeah. Jane notes how awful the Mississippi Commission was in comparison to that Connecticut Commission, which we praised yes, yeah. in the previous fight. Because the Mississippi Commission allegedly paid no attention whatsoever to her medical papers. Right. Anyway, Jane lost the fight on a split decision. And afterwards, Jane recalls how embarrassing and traumatic it was for her to lose. I thought this was really interesting, Joe, because I very rarely see a fighter lose in a fight, especially when they put an honest effort in and think, oh, that's embarrassing. I guess I can understand from her perspective, you know, you're a top-level fighter, it's your first defeat, it's unexpected. I I suppose when you've gone on a a run like that, Hmm. you do start to feel perhaps invincible almost as an athlete, you know, or... Yeah. And it's a shock to the system. I think so. And I think especially when we look at the local following a lot of these fighters have. Yes. Yeah. So I heard really recently Terry Harper talking about this. So she lost that fight to Baumgartner a few months ago. Now, in the build-up for her last fight, there was a segment on DAZN, I think it was, where she talked about this embarrassment that Jane Couch does. So she said, it was a really stark story, actually. She said that she lives in a small village this is Terry Harper and that she couldn't go shopping after the fight what she would do was that there was her local supermarket but she would drive miles out of town and she said she would like look at a little old lady on the street and think oh how embarrassing this this little old lady see me lose and get knocked out and all of that and she really felt that embarrassment I've heard others talking about it you know down the years I'm just thinking I think it was Shannon Courtney yeah. that after her loss to Rachel Ball, right. she did an interview with IFL TV, which was really stark interview, very enlightening. And she talked about the same issues, actually, of being embarrassed. Yeah. As I say, just from the fan perspective, it's because just not how we it, view it. No, yeah. because we, we, we look at them as, you know, having such gifted athletes who've given their all. Yeah. They've done their best. And most of the time, quite heroic in victory or defeat. In Exactly. No, I, I totally take your your point so anyway Jane said that losing made her feel as though she was a less desirable person to know I mean it's so sad and it gives us such an insight into the mental toll that boxing can take on fighters Joel, I want to have a brief chat about Tex Woodward and his relationship with Jane because, as you said earlier, he undoubtedly played a pivotal role in her life career. But I think it's fair to say that their relationship was pretty complex. Yeah, let's look at a few bits here. So after the first Dora Weber loss, it appears as though Tex agreed to a rematch without even consulting Jane yeah. with the attitude that Jane would fight anyone, anytime, anywhere. But look, yeah, this attitude can be quite dangerous for a trainer of a top-level fighter to have. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, say that a brave cornerman or a brave referee is the most dangerous thing you can have in boxing, but also a brave manager yeah. who is going to put you in 
in fights that you shouldn't be in yeah. is a very dangerous thing to have as well. Yeah. So the reason I mention this is that Jane didn't actually want the rematch. And when the rematch took place on the 10th of January 1998, yeah. it was for the WIBF super lightweight title. Jane lost the fight again on points this time over 10 rounds. Yeah. Incidentally, actually, Jane felt she was robbed in this fight. It was scored 98-92 in favour of Weber. But the state commissioner, Larry Hazard, who was sat at ringside, claimed not to have seen the fight when he was questioned on it. Another was... ludicrous <laughs> example of the craziness of boxing, boxing right there. Isn't it? You can get away with saying anything <laughs> in boxing. Uh, Roy Foreman, who was the brother of George, yep. said that they did exactly the same, the same thing to George here, which was the fight against Shannon Briggs in November 1997, yep. which George lost by way of majority decision. Except that decision cost George Foreman millions and millions of dollars as the winner of that fight was due to fight Lennox Lewis for the WBC title the following year. So he's basically saying his brother was also robbed in, in that state. Much the same way that Jane was saying. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there is some credible evidence to suggest that Jane was on the wrong end of a dodgy decision in this rematch. Again, we've been unable to give an opinion ourselves because we can't fight the fight anyway. But back to your point though, Joel, if Tex organised the second Dora Weber fight behind Jane's back without consulting her, as you say, that for me is a, is a clear indication that he really isn't acting in her best interest when that really is his primary role or should be his primary consideration. Yeah. When we discussed the Fleetwood Assassin book earlier, which was Jane's story told through text, yeah. we said that Jane's view was that she had very little input into the end product of this book. Yeah. So there is ample evidence to support this claim that we're yeah. talking about here. Yeah. In that book, Jane refers to text a lot as granddad, which is obviously a term of endearment. Yes. Given that he obviously wasn't her actual granddad. And the term is in liberal use throughout the book. So it portrays Tex as Jane's de facto family, whereas in her 2019 autobiography, and I do understand a lot of time has passed here between yeah. the two, Tex isn't portrayed anywhere near as positively by Jane. Absolutely. And she says that he basically controlled her life and would often dissuade her from seeing family and friends back home, thus prolonging this life of solitude that she led on his farm. Totally agree with you. Now, another interesting thing to note is that in Tris Dixon's excellent podcast on Jane, which you mentioned earlier, now this is a mammoth two-hour-long podcast. Yes, I good, don't very think, good though. I don't think she. Dis- well, the reason I mentioned the length oh, of yes, time, yeah, yeah, is because in all of that time, I don't think she discusses text either at all or in any great length. I don't really remember him being mentioned. I don't know if you do. I don't at all either. No, I know. Definitely listen to it. So I read the Arsene Wenger autobiography recently. I thought it was quite dull, actually. I thought it was quite dull. I was really disappointed. So was I. There was literally nothing interesting or juicy in it. No, and this is what I was about to say, actually, is my reference to that point, is that the stuff I was really looking forward to hearing about was his perspective on his relationship with Jose Mourinho, where Mourinho, you know, was at the top. Yeah. And he just kept sort of acting like he was a little dog biting at Arsene Wenger's heels yeah. you know and it was really horrific behaviour oh, from horrible. an adult bullying nasty yeah, stuff that went on for years and years and something that Arsene Wenger did that was very notable in his book he did not mention Jose Mourinho once Yeah. so his ah, thing was well I'm yes. just getting rid of him from my history I don't want to engage on that history in this book maybe that's what's happened here with Jane oh, okay. yeah, very good know. point so 
Another thing is that when I was reading the Fleetwood Assassin book, something very alarming came to mind in one of the following passages, which I'm going to read, okay, where Jane says this of her relationship with Tex. Go for it. Tex might have been old, but he wasn't frail. We'd had plenty of play fights together, and he had developed some techniques of controlling me. The most effective was to grab a bunch of my thick, crinkly hair and force me to my knees. That's just what he did. He'd raise his wide fists, and I thought he was going to smash my face. Wow, I mean, that's... Yeah. Look, at no point as Jane suggested that Tex was violent towards her, and we're not insinuating that in any way. Yeah. But nonetheless, I found that extract quite revealing, shall we say. Yeah. And actually, if we couple that with what you were mentioning before about isolating her yes. from certain people and her yeah. family and friends, I mean, when we bundle this all together, this doesn't look good, Joe. No, it doesn't. Absolutely not. I yeah. totally agree. It's, it's, I mean, it's a form of control. It's... Um, it is. It's, it's coercive it, control. And in fact, we've made the decision with this pod in general that we're not going to shy away from saying cool things. Yeah. Right. So I'm just going to say here that I found text came across as controlling. Absolutely. I, I didn't like the tone of the whole Fleetwood Assassin book. Yeah. And it was basically written from his point of view. Yeah. Right, so it should be quite yeah. favourable on him, really. Yeah, I think as we're telling the story, it's right that I at least insinuate my thoughts on this side of things out of respect for Jane. And as it isn't my place to publicly comment, I'm not going to elaborate on my thoughts, but that's no. the gist, okay? Fair enough. On the subject of their relationship as well, I have another example where I again very clearly shows that Tex certainly wasn't acting in Jane's best interest, in our opinion. And that was when he arranged for Jane to fight the legendary Lucia Riker in 2003. This was arranged on only 12 days' notice. Wow. Now, we're going to discuss this particular fight in more detail later on in the pod, but trust me when I say this, listeners, for those of you who do not know Lucia Riker, she's not someone you want to fight at the best of times, let alone on just 12 days' Noticed. No, she's she's the most fearsome female fighter in history, in my opinion. Did she knock out all of her opponents? Um, I don't I, know. I, I, we I, might. I might I actually come so. onto her she record. I think she, she knocked out the majority high, of them, though. Right? Yeah, she probably very, had a very high knockout ratio. She uh, was absolutely. an outstanding fighter with yeah. you know all the technique, but also the power that you know we sometimes think is missing from the female game. Absolutely, no, no question, Joel. You you, you couldn't have put it better. Right, Joel, let's discuss the court case which, other than Jane's boxing career, Jane is probably most famous for and which paved the way for women in the UK to make a living from fighting and also have their fights officially licensed by the British Boxing Board of Control, who Jane ultimately took to a tribunal in 1998 and won. Now, when Jane revealed earlier that she couldn't fight in England and had to turn down £10,000 to fight at Wembley, this caught the attention of a very eagle-eyed solicitor called Sarah Leslie, whose legal instincts were obviously very good, as she knew that this could be challenged. Yeah, it was challenged on on the basis of it being a restriction of trade, right? That's correct, absolutely. Yeah, let's clear something up quickly here. 
it wasn't actually illegal for women to box professionally in Britain. Right. It's a bit of a common misconception. Okay. It's not as if the government forbade it or anything like that. European Union freedom of trade laws wouldn't allow this sort of stuff. Yeah. But so because of the way that the sport is structured in Britain, women were effectively stopped from being able to earn a living yeah. as the British Boxing Board of Control wouldn't license female fighters. That's correct. Yeah. So on top of this, if any promoter who was licensed by the board staged an unlicensed show, and now this would be an unlicensed male or female, show but of course if a woman were to appear on the card it would be an unlicensed show yeah that promoter then ran the risk of having their license rescinded Correct. so an example of this is what happened after those dreadful scenes in germany when david hay sucker punched derek chisora oh, after yeah. the chisora klitschko fight uh, is this with a bottle in his hand as well yeah that's the one yeah, cool. yeah. and after after chisora just done 12 rounds with vitaly klitschko man it's just yeah bad ball, <laughs> Anyway, I don't like that. David Hay. Yeah, so following that, anyway, the British Boxing Board of Control didn't want to licence the fight between Chisora and Hay, yeah. the grudge match. So they, I think they stripped Chisora of his licence yeah. in the build-up, but Hay didn't have a licence, I think, so they just wouldn't give him a licence. You know, yeah. But what, what happened was that Frank Warren, instead of sort of going, right, the fight can't be made in Britain, <laughs> he still wanted the fight to be made in Britain. So he went and got the Luxembourg Boxing Federation and he... He used them as the licensing commission for the fight. That well-known federation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, of all those, um, you know, major world, world title appeal, fights. Yeah. Um, oh, just scratching my head trying to remember one of them. But anyway. So hang on, they're the federation you go to as a matter of last resort, essentially. Yeah, I can't. I haven't really heard of anyone else going to them since. But anyway, right. apparently so. Okay. It's like it's like the States and the US and it. You can't get licensed by one. Let's go, go somewhere, somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. boxing, in it. <laughs> um, so anyway where was I the British Boxing Board of Control at the time sort of threatened the boxers and promoters and all of this anyone who was going to who was threatening to appear on the Chisora Hay card for the Luxembourg Commission yeah. they were threatening to withdraw their licences okay now the thing is they were hamstrung at the time because <laughs> they there were too many big boxers and figures on the card what could they do they couldn't sort of drop all these guys but what you can see here is that Jane Couch on her own in the 90s yeah. as a solitary real British female figure yeah. you know she, no one's going to risk their licence for Jane Couch unfortunately in the 90s no it's a good point mate actually. you know so it's a really good point this is, this is what we were dealing with yeah. so in 98 to prove that she couldn't get a licence to box Jane actually made an application to the British Boxing Board of Control which she was of course entitled to do she knew it would be fruitless yeah. uh, but she passed all the medical tests the blood tests the brain scans all of that business she was then interviewed by the BBB of C which were, this was like the final part of the process yeah. to obtain the licence and at the end of the interview right at the end her application was refused on the basis that she was a woman Yeah. so That's... Jane was able to prove very easily that she wasn't legally allowed to box well not legally but she wasn't legally allowed to box for the British Boxing Border Control in the yeah. UK <laughs> Again, got to sort of make this clear. If you were going to make money boxing in Britain, you had to box you had to, yeah. for the British Boxing Board of Control. Yeah. Right? So it was effectively blocking her right to earn a living here. Yeah. On the basis of this evidence, she took the British Boxing Board of Control to court, utilised the services of a barrister called Dina Rose, who Jane speaks of very highly in her book. She does indeed. It's interesting as well because the British Boxing Board of Control filed a defence, if you could call it that. I say that word very loosely. This is where it gets comical, listeners, by the way, because one of the board's defence 
defences at the time was this remarkable claim that women couldn't fight on medical grounds as they would be emotionally unstable. Brilliant. Due to the fact that they have periods. Emotion- I can't think of any emotionally unstable male boxers that were allowed to fight no, anyway. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> bo- I'm just wondering what era did they think they were living in at the time? It's, it's crazy. Oh, yeah, that was actually unreal. part of their defence. You know, as someone who used to be a solicitor myself, I like to, to drop that in every now and again. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just think about this. I can't believe that was the defence. It's crazy. Don't worry, I'll I'll mention it a few times. (laughs) Don't worry, we're not going to let this go. We've got a solicitor on the pod, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. On this basis, though, that they turned around and said this, what jobs are they proposing that women can actually do? Well, it's interesting you say that, Joel, because the barrister, Dina Rose, is obviously very clued up. She cross-examined... I can't remember It would have been the superstar of the show, Dr. Adrian Whiteson. Oh, yeah. He was a medical advisor, wasn't he, for yeah, the British for... Boxing Board of Control? Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's it. He was brought in to back up their case. In retrospect, I think this may have been a error of judgment. Yes, no, I, th- I think you're underselling it there as well. So, Dina Rose... Essentially ripped Dr. Whiteson to shreds and tore him a new one, so to speak. Um, she said to Dr. Whiteson, "Based on your claims, you wouldn't want a woman to pilot a plane." To which he said, "Yes." <laughs> I know it's, it's crazy. Then the killer bit comes, right? She says, "Nor would you like to leave small children in the care of women." Oh, what an would, argument! Which would be dangerous and a bad idea. Then to which this poor idiot basically said, "Yes." again yeah i think this is at the the stage that jane said the whole tribunal erupted in laughter at the ludicrousness of the response yeah now what's really interesting as well about this particularly as someone who used to be a solicitor who's that <laughs> i think his name's joe oh right oh caulfield <laughs> yeah. that one yeah what's really interesting is that Jane's solicitor basically told her from the outset that she had a 100% chance of winning the case. Yeah, this was really early on in the case as well, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. Now, litigation solicitors, you know, they don't like to put their neck on the line, you know, with any degree of certainty because, you know, the outcome of, of a case depends on so many variables. And even on the judge and stuff, I assume. Yeah? Exactly. Yeah. And you, you tell your client, oh, you're pretty sure it's going to be this outcome and then mm. it's different. You know, you, you, you get it drastically wrong. You're not going to come across well. No. So for Jane's solicitor to say clear as day you will 100% win this case it just goes to show how legally wrong the British Boxing Board of Control's policy was so I mean nevertheless the tribunal found in Jane's favour amazingly the British Boxing Board of Control actually tried to appeal the decision that their appeal was denied hmm. now one thing that really struck a chord with me and I'm sure it did with you as well when researching Jane was just how much opposition there was to women's boxing amongst the boxing fraternity both before but even after her legal victory you'd think maybe her legal victory would um, set the trend for a change in attitude but but it didn't so uh, as an example Kelly Maloney who was formerly Frank Maloney before she transitioned the famous boxing promoter of the 90s and 2000s was extremely vocal in her opposition to women boxing I mean unbelievably vocal to and and quite horrible to to Jane as you're going to touch on in in a minute yeah I mean there was abusive sort of behaviour really again there you know really nasty stuff yeah just so we're really clear, by the way, any references to Frank Maloney throughout the podcast aren't intended to offend. It's merely references to Maloney as Maloney was known at exactly. the time. So yeah. if we refer to Frank Maloney, it's we're talking about the boxing promoter exactly. Maloney, really. Yeah. So Jane says that with Frank, it was essentially personal. And, and as you touched on, he was often ab- abusive to her. But I have to say, you know, having done the research... It's so ironic that someone who benefited from a legal right to become a woman was so unbelievably vociferous in their opposition to a woman's right to work. 
Yeah, this reminds me of all of the Section 28 stuff in the 80s, actually. I don't know if you know about all of this. I don't, Joel, no. Well, it's basically some homophobic laws got brought in and got pushed through um, Parliament by right. the Conservative government at the time. Yeah. And it's basically about, you know, you can promote gays in schools and all this. It was ridiculous, you know, okay. as if children heard the word gay and they would then turn out gay, all this sort of ridiculous thinking. Yeah. Anyway, they they pushed all of this stuff through all these Tory MPs voted the stuff through Parliament, yeah. got it made into law, and then a few years later in the 90s, a bunch of these guys came out as gay. Oh, my gosh. You know, yeah. just, uh, not a word of contrition. Don't mention it since. You yeah. know what I mean? It's just like, I mean, it just really reminds me of this stuff. That's interesting, actually. No, that's a good point. Anyway, it's not surprising all this stuff on, on Frank Maloney, yeah. because when Maloney stood for London Mayor in 2000 under the UKIP banner... Which is bad enough. Uh, yeah, it's a very... <laughs> A decent argument there, Joe. Yeah. He claimed not to have campaigned in Camden as there were too many gays there. Right. So, and I quote him here, yeah, I don't want to campaign around gays. I don't think they do a lot for society. What I have a problem with is them openly flaunting their sexuality. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and these weren't, you know, it wasn't a hot mic moment. Yeah. Right? This was in an interview picked up nationally, including on the BBC. Yeah. Frank later claimed that these comments were meant to be off the record, right? But the interview was actually featured on Maloney's own website, right? So, it's a ludicrous cat play. Oh my gosh, dear. He doesn't come across at all well. He hasn't covered himself in glory, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, 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 he didn't. Anyway, there was a lot of negative media coverage towards Jane. Yeah. So, one story that I believe Jane brings up is a radio show appearance with Vanessa Feltz. Now, Vanessa Feltz was a big 90s figure for people that don't know. Yeah. Uh, she was just a broadcaster. So she appears to have been asked on the show under false pretenses, right? Yeah. So on the show, Vanessa Feltz just goes on about how she thinks women's boxing is disgusting and all of that, you know, same tired old business. Yeah. Jane talks about being on the back foot in situations like this. She wasn't, like, media savvy. She found it difficult to deal with stuff like this. Yeah. You know, it's it's... It was like, say, she would be be thrown onto talk shows with, say, Frank Warren yeah. or Barry Hearn or whoever. I don't think Barry Hearn. I'm just saying a, a major promoter of the time or yeah. Frank Maloney. Yeah. And then be sort of ambushed about... She thinks she's going on to promote a fight, which she's a boxer. She's going to go and do this. Yeah. She's then ambushed with stuff about, oh, should you even have the right to box? Blah, blah. And she wasn't there. She wasn't there for that. Exactly. And yeah. she isn't some eloquent boxing promoter. Yeah. So she's going to be out-debated by people whose lives are spent debating exactly. and trash-talking. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter what they're arguing about. They were going to be winning these arguments. Yeah. She didn't want to be in this at, at all. It's just, it's sad. Like, you know, it no, really I is. totally agree, agree with you on that, Joel. It's, it's a really poor reflection on society at the time. Really poor. Yeah, honestly, when you boil it down, right, Jane was just a boxer applying her trade. Yeah. And part of her role as a fighter is to get some publicity. Yeah. Especially if you want to draw. Yeah. Being a draw means you make money, right? It's so tragic because Jane didn't place herself as the defender of women's rights. Yeah, history placed her there. And she's very vocal about that in interviews, even to this day. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jane would go on various shows or turn up on phone-ins and all of that, and all of a sudden you have the likes of Frank Maloney or Frank Warren, who was also vocal in his opposition to women's boxing, giving yeah. Jane a really hard time or being disparaging towards her. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's really unfair looking back on it. She was being put in these verbal battles 
And she isn't, you know, like an eloquent boxing promoter. So it doesn't matter how right she is and how wrong they are. Yeah. They're in a position to out-argue her. This is what they do for a living. Yeah. They're going to out-argue and out-debate her. Yeah. Tris Dixon said in his podcast that because it was journalism, maybe they were just trying to have an opposing view to give balance. But like, mate, hang on a second. Why would we need a counter-argument against someone's personal career choice? Why does that need balance? Couldn't agree more, Joel. Anyway, sadly, you'd think that post her legal victory, things would be easier for Jane. But as you mentioned before, they weren't. No. Big boxing promoters in the UK at the time just turned the noses off her. We're talking Frank Maloney, Frank Warren, Barry Hearn. Yeah. What's amazing is that Jane had good, good relationships with a lot of these people in the boxing fraternity. Yeah. She got really well with them. Yeah. But many of these same people were really disparaging about the idea of women fighting. They're cowards. That's what I think it comes down to. It's almost cowardly. It will. So you say that, but I think they were quite open with Jane about it. I don't think they were two-faced about these things. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Interesting. You know, because Jane mentioned like being yeah. friends with them and stuff, yeah. and then being really upset when they didn't say this stuff, but they were saying it to her face as well. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, it's just a brutal business, man. Yeah. It's horrible, yeah. and they're a bunch of bloody sexist. I mean, yeah. there's no two I ways think around maybe it. Not, maybe not so much cowardly, but just very overtly sexist. Yeah, just bigoted. Okay, right, we have just sat in judgment on those who were against female boxing in James era. Yeah. But I think we need to have a frank and honest discussion about whether attitudes have changed for the better in this day and age. And when I say attitudes, I mean others' attitudes and ours personally. Let's yeah. analyse what, what we were like. Yeah. Okay, now I've got to admit that up until the past few years, I wasn't particularly interested in women's boxing. I used to watch Jane when I was younger, when clips came on the telly and all yeah. that. I was mad into boxing. I found her to be a really interesting character. She was visible, right? Yeah. I didn't see any live fights of hers. I don't think they were on terrestrial TV at least. Yeah. I'm not sure if they were on an obscure sort of, you know, cable channel or whatever at the time. I don't yeah. know. So I up until 2012, when things changed with the introduction of women's boxing in the Olympics, and it was a huge change. I mean, this was a revolution in the female game. Absolutely. Prior to that, I had pretty much zero interest in women's boxing. I think this would have been due to the standard, which was awful. Yeah. Frankly, especially through the early 2000s, there just wasn't anyone, you know, known about, no one particularly good. Yeah. And, you know, it just, it, it wasn't a big thing in sport. It wasn't women's boxing, it just wasn't relevant yeah. in the sport of boxing, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So, if I'm being honest, again, it took me a few years after to the 2012 milestone for me to really get used to women's boxing. Yeah. I didn't particularly enjoy watching them fight, especially in violent, bloody battles. But I got over that quite quickly, mate, as a good fight. Of course you fight, did. Do you know what I mean? Bloodthirsty animal. <laughs> yeah, well, I am a bit of a boxing fan. Uh, I think the fight that really helped me change with that was actually the Casey Taylor Delphine Pursuit fight on oh, the undercard okay. of Joshua Ruiz. That was an amazing all-out war, that one, and you couldn't watch that and not be enthralled and just go, yeah, this is the wicked fight. Yeah, and no, I, that that's... was the one that probably changed it for me, and I sort of haven't really looked back since, I'd say. I have to say, I, I think it's really refreshing to hear you be really honest as well. And I probably do. I mean, I, I, I will c agree with you on that as well. Women's box boxing just wasn't particularly relevant. So why would you? I mean, there was just nothing to really captivate the average fan. Absolutely. And get like, them interested in it. No, that's it. It's like with football, isn't it? You know, Premier League football and all of that. If we can pair both boxing and football in the 90s 
with mm. the product on offer today, it's night and day, mate. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's completely night and day. The the standard has rocketed in both sports. Yeah. I mean, if I'm being honest as well, I'd, I'd you know, I'm, I'd obviously much more into, you know, men's boxing because that's how I've been brought up yeah. you know, in, in the sport. It's how I've been conditioned to really just watch men's boxing, essentially. Absolutely. And it's also, I think, another problem that we've got here is that it's so rare as fight fans, what is our number one when it comes to fights? Mm. It's not that we watch top-level fights that the standard is particularly good. Mm. Our number one is evenly matched fights, and yeah. you get so few of them in the yeah. female game still. Yeah. The comparison I'll make is UFC because I know you've, you've got some really interesting points to make here. But watching fighters like uh, you know Ronda Rousey, Amanda Nunes, they I think they were the sort of female fighters who I got into more quickly or, or certainly sooner than anyone you know any particular superstar in in box in women's boxing. And, and right now you do have some female superstars in women's boxing, but they were just fighters who I'd watch their fights and I'd be like oh my god yeah. you know they are involved in some absolutely unbelievable fights and they are knockout fighters they are in explosive contests well that's a big thing isn't it is that the knockout aspect the power aspect of the women's game is also yeah. seen as a reason why it's not caught on quite as quickly obviously as the men's game and as, as quickly as it did in UFC but what you've just said there Joe chimes with me so much because how absurd that us two, you know, as such boxing nuts, and we, you know, we've got a passing interest in the UFC. Yeah. But frankly, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm, you know, I'm interested in MMA. I like fight sports, you know, yeah, exactly. but, it, but you know, it's nothing to me compared to boxing. Exactly. Yeah. However, the first female fighter of the modern age that I was actually interested in and watching all their fights it weren't a boxer it was Ronda Rousey in the UFC yeah and not only that it was Ronda Rousey couldn't throw a punch yeah. in the UFC do you know what I mean she didn't like to box at all and she was, was more still a wrestler wasn't, by her. Grappler, wasn't she yeah, yeah she's just yeah. A, a judo yes yeah, yes yeah, judo, judo that's artist, it wasn't she? And yeah. grappler and all of that yeah I mean yeah, but it was it just showed that if you promote female fighting properly yes what could be done so I think the UFC has shown boxing what it's missing out on right and by what it's missing out on I mean a shed load of cash to extract by promoting women's boxing properly yeah right? pound note is the only language in sports administration mate yes, right? yes. so I've got to say I've, I've really enjoyed some of the uh, women's boxing on Eddie Hearn shows recently yes there is absolutely no doubt that the matchroom machine is getting behind the female game yeah. it's brought it on leaps and bounds and now that Jake Paul's jumped on the bandwagon stateside with Amanda Serrano we're about to hit boom time mate absolutely i tell you what one fight that stood out which was you know relatively recently was Terry Harper and Alicia Baumgartner I mean great fight but what a stoppage as well that's the sort of stoppage where you just sit back and go wow yeah. you know now you know that you've got some explosive hitters in the game. Yeah, we've know. got we've got her, we've got Savannah Marshall. Savannah Marshall. You know, these 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 women just have power. Absolutely. And that really does change, you know, the potential I think for the sport. Yeah. Cuz Jane mentioned as well that and I think we touched on it before that a problem for women's boxing in the past has been the lack of knockout artists. Yeah. Other than really Lucy Araika perhaps of her era who she obviously fought. Yeah. You know, there aren't there weren't really many women fighters or any women fighters who had a high percentage of knockouts in you know in relation to their victories. No, I mean you had you had people, you know, again, a long time ago, people like Anne Wolfe. But again, she wasn't a sort of 
she box, wouldn't have box off yeah. she was wild do you know what I mean and she yeah. she could land punches but she was actually similar to Deontay Wilder in the fact that <laughs> yeah she would land and she would knock people out yeah. but it wasn't through a finesse of boxing do you know what I mean it was yeah, a different yeah. style these guys are different I mean you watch Savannah Marshall fight I mean she never loads up on punches but she just knocks people silly yeah exactly who's that Welsh fighter that you're really high on Joel I'm sure she made you a lot of money at the 2020 Olympics I know she did actually Lauren Price (laughs) yes mate honestly she's going to change the game in my opinion she's just signed professional papers with Ben Shalom and the Box Art organisation so turning pro on Sky which I think is a great move for her you know these ones who come out of the Olympics with such a high profile you want to be viewed by as many eyes as possible Mm -hmm. and I think Sky is a fantastic uh, platform for her and for her missus Kate Arkin School yes she's been signed as well yeah yep. they're, they're turning pro together yeah she's gonna she's gonna really change the game as I say Lauren Price she's going look at what Katie Taylor did for Ireland and the female game there I think Price is the one who's gonna do it for the rest of Britain what's also really interesting about Lauren Price's Olympic win yep. is that she was fighting at a higher weight class than she should have been she was fighting at middleweight because someone else and that someone else being her girlfriend yep. already had the place at the lower weight at Welter oh wow yeah, so I didn't she's, realise that yeah so Lauren Price is turning professional at welterweight okay yeah so she and, went over and that's how good she was and Lauren Price is also I mean she's got a, an, an incredible athletic sporting background as well like she Maybe she's been what was it 52 caps for Wales in football in football that's amazing she's been a world champion in kickboxing she's competed at a high level in taekwondo often all of this during the same period I mean she's just a, an amazing sports person Maybe, making me and you look like the life's underachievers again <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I, I can never argue against that point. I no. just got to go. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Fighting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lauren Price is a complete fighter. Yeah, she's got an interesting story. She's got an engaging personality. She's got this relationship with Karis Arkinstall. Yeah, she's going to be the one. I'm positive, barring some sort of disaster, that she's the one who will take women's boxing to the next level. In fact, mate, I guarantee it. Right, back to Jane Couch, Joel. So after her legal victory and getting her licence from the British Boxing Board of Control, her first fight was promoted by someone called Roy Cameron, which is interesting because, as you said earlier, none of the big promoters at the time wanted anything to do with, to do with Jane, despite her legal victory. Allegedly as well... Frank Maloney pulled one of his fighters fighters off the undercard in protest, which is obviously just petty and, and vindictive. I mean, if that's true, what you just said there, Joe, there's no way that that is in his fighters' best interest, like Maloney's fighters' best interest no. at the time. So you're basically denying your own fighter a payday and the exposure all fighters need just because you want to hold a grudge against someone. It's just, the mind boggles. I know, crazy. So Jane obviously continued to fight all over the country thereafter. I think winning world titles at World weight and lightweight as well now here's an interesting story so in 2001 jane fought the niece of tim witherspoon she won a four-rounder in jamaica yet sadly yet again jane wasn't paid her fee for fighting this was a massive recurring theme throughout her career because according to jane after that fight against carla witherspoon the promoter of the show basically came up to her told her i'm not paying you and in an act of like pure intimidation just picks up a knife in front of her and slams it into the middle of the table Uh, as if to say that's it you're going to have to accept that yeah I personally would have just been intimidated and accepted it absolutely you know (laughs) it's just just horrific it is horrific it's completely 
stuff. Horrific. Awful, awful stuff that she had to put up with just all the time. It's like there's no aspect to Jane's story where she didn't have to fight to get what she deserved in some way. Exactly. This is the one, actually, the reason why I think we decided to end the first series on this is it's the story that really illustrated the, the good, the bad and the ugly of boxing. Absolutely. In, we love the sport, but I mean, it's horrible sometimes. As it's well. an ugly sport. Oh, yeah, you know, definitely. We love it, but it is an ugly sport. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, and it's the whole thing as well, isn't it? It's what, what makes me feel bad when we do an episode like this and, you know, I look at Jane's career and what she's put up with. Yeah. And in this awful, guilty way, this is actually one of the reasons why I love the sport. Yeah. And it's not because this sort of thing is done to people like Jane. Yeah. It's just because this stuff does happen in the sport and it's it's fascinating. It is interesting. It is. It's yeah. awful. You know, it's, it's awful, awful, but it is really interesting to research and it's just part of boxing story that it's a brutal, nasty business uh, as yeah. well as being an astonishing, brilliant, hopeful yeah. business as well. It's a, it's yeah. a real sort of oxymoron. Absolutely. Yeah. Good, good, big word, Joel. <laughs> Did I use <laughs> it correctly? Big for you. <laughs> my mum will let me know. <laughs> I can assure you of that. <laughs> I touched on Lucy Arika earlier, but Jane fought her in 2003. Did you watch that fight, Joel? Yeah, I've seen that fight. Yeah. Uh, Riker won comfortably on points. And can I interject? That was the first fighter that Lucy Riker hadn't stopped, so that really does no, speak really? volumes. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I'm good. Hold me 95% to that. I'm pretty sure that Lucy Riker had stopped all her opponents up until that point. Right, cool, cool. Well, yeah, so yeah, I did notice that. She went the distance, obviously, as you say. Did you know that Lucy Riker once fought a man in a kickboxing event in 1994? And I only bring this up, by the way, because I think there was some discussion in Jane's book of her fighting a man at some point. Uh, this never happened. I didn't know that, Joel. No. Did did, did she win? <laughs> oh, no, mate. No, oh, no, no, no. She got viciously banged out. That's, yeah, maybe let's not have intergender matches in boxing. <laughs> no, mate, no, no. This, this isn't the WWF, do you know what I mean? <laughs> WWE now, Joel. Sorry, oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm so old-fashioned. <laughs> it's not the World World Wildlife Foundation. Over the years. <laughs> oh, sorry, but um, anyway, Lucy Riker is. I think you will agree here, widely considered as one of the greatest female boxers of all time. Yes, and, and I was right. Going into that fight, she definitely she did have a perfect record of 15 fights, 15 wins, all by way of knockout. God, she, was, she was like Baumgartner in, in, yeah. in the way that she could punch. Oh, brutal. Yeah, yeah I mean, early, she, she early could punch in a female spark game. you out. Yeah, completely. And like I say, Jane was the first boxer to go the distance with Lucia in this fight, which was an eight-rounder. No mean feat, though. No. It, it was a fairly one-sided fight. You it know, was very one-sided. Um, what stood out to me watching this fight, Joel, and I think this, this just reflects her character, is just how t- tough Jane was. Yep. I mean, she could take punishment and keep coming forward as well. It's not a surprise, is it? I don't think there was any danger of Jane being stopped in that fight, to be honest. No, no, but she fought that fight as she fought in life, you know. She just, exactly. You know, so she just kept coming forward, even taking, you know, a real punishment. Yeah. So in this fight as well, Jane said that she suffered a perforated eardrum. And because she never suffered an injury like this before, she actually thought she'd suffer brain damage in the fight. Oh, imagine wow. that. The feeling of it must have unsettled her so much. Like, that's just awful. Imagine being in the middle of a boxing match thinking, oh, oh I've got brain damage. Oh, yeah, no. Jeez. And actually, on the subject of injuries suffered by Jane in, in the ring, this story's actually quite funny. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. 
So this was against Jamie Clampett on the 12th of June 2004 in the US. So Jane won that. That was for the International Women's Boxing Federation Super Lightweight title. So Jane broke her tooth and said that she was in absolute agony post-fight as a result of that injury. So she was referred to a dentist who was available in the hotel. I think the fight took place at the Foxwoods uh, Resort Casino, if I'm right. So upon finding the dentist in question, the dentist basically told Jane to inhale from a pipe. And I say pipe in inverted Brilliant. Didn't sound like dentistry to me. <laughs> and and Jane says that after her pain issues had been soundly dealt with, she went and partied the night away on, in Jane. celebration yes. of her win. On a more serious note, I think it's fair to say that towards the end of her career, there came a point where Jane started to suffer seriously from depression. Now, she'd obviously been living on the farm for the best part of 15 years or so with Tex and his family. This was away from her own family. And I think she felt that she was going through the motions. This would have been towards the end of her career as well. She says in her book that she shouldn't have fought, you know, her last five or six fights. So she wasn't motivated and she wasn't well mentally now her her last fight was on the 8th of December 2007 which Jane lost by way of knockout and and Jane talks very candidly in her autobiography about her struggles towards the end of her career post-retirement boxing and you know there was one thing actually that really stood out to me from reading her book there was a young girl I think called Meg who Jane actually says you know that this young person this young girl essentially really helped me get through this dark time in my life Uh, there's actually a four or five page extract in jane's autobiography where meg who's obviously now an adult writes very glowingly of jane so i would encourage people yeah get the book give it a read it's really it's really interesting um and when jane was living her life of solitude on the farm because really that's what it was i think that's how it really comes across it was Mm. a life of solitude yeah it does seem like that. very lonely period it's very lonely and very regimented wasn't it exactly yeah yeah um, Meg's parents would come down to the farm with Meg and um, and her parents could tell that Jane was, you know, living this really isolated lifestyle and she wasn't eating particularly well either. Jane, you know, Jane's very candid about not having any money. I mean, hardly surprising, you don't get paid for your, your fights. No, so, true. you know, uh, Meg's parents would, would often bring, you know, Jane Mills. Very nice. But also, once she retired from boxing, or towards the end of her career anyway, didn't Jane start promoting? I, I think, yeah, no, she, she did. did. She did, yeah. And she joined the British Boxing Board of Control to start approving licences as well. She did. Yeah, so yeah. I think she chose to do this in part because of her own experiences with the board. Yeah, so it made a lot of sense. But she didn't stay in the role for too long uh, because of the politics involved. Yeah. So, for example, she said that certain promoters of well, or certain promoters of certain fighters would have their licenses issued really easily, whereas other fighters wouldn't. In other words, politics, mate. You know, exactly. Politics that yeah. was life in boxing. Yeah, no, she didn't want any part of. Yeah, and it still is. Now, I think Jane's experience with boxing was, sadly, overwhelmingly negative. Yeah, I have and, to agree with you there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. would. And I'm, I actually mentioned this in one of my tweets to her. You know, I said that the sport wasn't kind to you mm. because, you know, I really don't think it, it was, especially, and it's hardly surprising it took a toll on her mental health. Of course it would. You know. It would do for anyone. Now, she talks in her in her autobiography about having this separation from boxing and she describes it as ha- having to have a funeral for it 
which wasn't a, fu- a real funeral, but more of a sort of symbolic funeral to signify a, a separation from the sport because she felt she really needed to do this in order to, I think, start a new life and move on. And, you know, prior to having this sort of separation from boxing, this symbolic, you know, gesture, I think it's fair to say she probably had a mental health breakdown. And she does go into detail in it, you know, whether you term it, you know, mental health or however you want to call it. And it's obvious that she was in a very dark, depressing place. You know, she's a clear sign here. She talks about not wanting to leave her flat, not wanting to be Jane Couch anymore. These are really, you know, clear signs of mental health struggles. And they can, you know, these are things that can become really alarming if you don't fix them. Yeah, you've got you've got to work on it. These sort of problems, exactly. And you know, she says in her book that one of her friends helped to get her, you know, to a hospital, which sort of set in place the process of, of recovery. Yeah, and it's a very difficult period for any fighter. This the retirement period of your life, because unless you make the absolute mega box, right? Yeah. When you retire, you know, take away what am I going to do for the rest of my life but even how am I going to provide for myself and my family or whatever for the rest of my life yeah you know it's such a difficult period so you know they've got to work out how to pay to keep, keep a roof over their head what are they going to do for work what are they going to do about making new friends because their whole social life will be built up in the sport will be yeah. tied into the sport should I say yeah so it's actually really common in boxing for what you've just described happened with Jane yeah to happen in the sport yeah so Tris Dixon again has done a lot of great work over the last few years highlighting the dangers of depression for boxers who leave the sport and he did that in conjunction with Boxing News yeah you're particularly open to this if you have taken a lot of blows you know especially to the head yeah as fighters can be prone to depression just from that you know and and let's be honest most boxers are going to take you know a blow blows to the head over the course of their career yeah you can't swim without getting wet I believe is the term you know yeah and 99% of them like you say are are not going to leave the sport with millions of pounds in their bank account no and on top of that if you've dedicated your whole life to boxing you probably won't have qualifications either that's a good point really good you know so add to that the fact that you've been a star in your own little world and I suspect it's like the thing where she talks about being less desirable after her first loss. Maybe she experienced that again towards the end of her career, her career and post-retirement when she knew it was over. It was all done. Yeah. I do get the impression that Jane is now at peace with her career in boxing. But I hope know, so. Yeah. I, I, I get the impression. I mean, I might be wrong. I can't speak for her, obviously. But, you know... Going back to my pre my previous point, there's no doubt that boxing wasn't wasn't kind to her. So if she has come to you know to to some sort of peace with it, then that, you know that's brilliant to hear because she had so many unpleasant experiences and was kind of like she was like a guinea pig, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, she was. She was. You know, it was like a big experiment on Jane Couch. Someone had to go through what she did in order for things to change for the better in women's boxing in the UK. Yeah, you know. In terms of her legacy, she was awarded an MBE in 2007 and in 2009 it was announced that women's boxing would would be included as a sport in the 2012 London Olympics. And off the back of that, you know, you had the emergence of fighters such as Nicola Adams and Katie Taylor. So without a shadow of a doubt, Jane Couch's legacy is absolutely extraordinary. No, it's an astonishing legacy that she's got. We wouldn't have any of what came after any of this thriving scene we've got at the moment without Jane Couch exactly 
have to say though Katie Taylor also had a very similar role to play with women's boxing um, in terms of it being included in the Olympics because she lobbied the Olympic Association heavily uh, like the Olympic Organising Committee yeah. um, and in fact she had an exhibition bout in front of the IOC to prove that the standard of women's boxing was now at the level that it should be designated as Olympic sport yeah. so unlike Jane she of course then benefited massively from its inclusion yeah she won gold in 2012 and had been heavily backed she's been heavily backed by arguably the biggest promoter in the world currently in Eddie Eddie Hunt yeah so Katie Taylor is of course a massive star now and earns more than most men do I know that's a fact as well she definitely does and I mean oh yeah I imagine there's only a handful of male fighters who earn more than Katie Taylor which Mm. shows just how far women's boxing has come yeah and Katie Taylor is a headliner and is about to headline the Madison Square Garden against Amanda Serrano in what's being billed as the biggest and most historically significant female fight ever we've also got Savannah Marshall yeah uh, game Clarissa Shields Shields, which is you know for me personally I've got to say I'm much more looking forward to that fight because I think I make this really the only time in the female game where you've got two superstars of the sport of the female game who are in their absolute fighting primes and they also have an amateur background and an amateur rivalry going back years you know Clarissa Shields the only time she's been beaten in her entire life yeah. was against Savannah Marshall yeah. in the amateurs now to meet in all the I mean that is such an exciting one and talk about styles as well do you know what's interesting is that when uh, Katie Taylor's fight against Amanda Serrano was announced people were basically saying oh it's the, you know, the biggest and most historically important female fight ever but what you're seeing on um, social media now is a lot of people are saying no hang on a sec Savannah Marshall Clarissa Shields but isn't it isn't it amazing that we can have that debate yeah you've got these fights where people are saying no actually this one's a much more important fight it's never it's a better before. fight to look forward to yeah I mean I can't no, wait to watch both of them but actually I agree with you Savannah Marshall Clarissa Shields has got the makings of an absolutely unbelievable fight hmm. that one could really put women's boxing you know in the stratosphere and it certainly will in this country yeah because the game is so hot in this country at the moment anyway yeah so a fight like that coming along in this country it'll be in Newcastle or in London it's going to be a huge mega event oh absolutely yeah it's going to we're moving in the right direction Joe no you're absolutely right there Joel now I just really wish that Jane got out of boxing what the you know what she put into it especially financially but you know she she has my complete and utter respect and admiration what a courageous strong and inspirational human being you know more than anything else i'm pleased that she seems to be in good mental health and has come to terms with her past yeah i just so yeah joe i just want to sort of back you on everything you've said there yeah uh, but also from my own sort of opinion on this right jane was a 90s british pop culture icon man but I think that the highest compliment I can pay her is that her legacy and career is completely unparalleled in British boxing. Yeah. No one's going to replicate what she did. No one had done it before and no one can do it sit now. Yeah. So she's got a unique place in British boxing history, which I think will only, in fact, I don't think I know will only be more recognised as the years go on. So Jane Couch, on behalf of the I Like Boxing podcast, we celebrate you, we thank you, for your massive contribution to boxing and we wish you all the best in the future.